A stark message to the world. I am here today not to start a war, but to prevent one. The lead starts right now. America's top diplomat at the United Nations Security Council today, laying out how Russia could lie to try to justify going into Ukraine. It might be a mass grave or a fake chemical attack or a staged drone strike, Secretary of State Antony Blinken says. Part of eastern Ukraine was just shelled. CNN is on the ground. Then, words Americans have been waiting to hear for two years, the most populous state in the nation entering the so-called endemic phase of COVID, meaning they're going to try to learn to live with it and lift restrictions. Might your state be next? Then, two teenagers, one white, one black, both in a fight in a New Jersey mall. Why was only the black teenager thrown to the ground and handcuffed by police? Well, his mother is speaking out. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with our world lead and warnings from the West that Russia is not telling the truth, that it is increasing its capabilities to invade Ukraine, and that it may be staging attacks right now to try to justify a war that they are clearly prepared for. We see some of those troops inch closer to that border. We see them fly in more combat and support aircraft. We see them sharpen their readiness. We even see them stocking up their blood supplies. Those comments by Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin echoed by President Biden today. He predicted an invasion within the next several days and by the head of NATO, who says that they've seen zero signs Russia is withdrawing forces from the border. The U.S. accusing Russia of escalating tensions even further today by expelling the second most senior diplomat at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow, a move the State Department called unprovoked. Our team of reporters is covering from every angle from across Ukraine to Moscow. But let's start with CNN's Phil Mattingly at the White House today and the Biden administration sending every top official except for President Biden around the world to sound the alarm. Let me be clear. I am here today not to start a war, but to prevent one. A dramatic appearance at the United Nations by America's top diplomat. This is a moment of peril for the lives and safety of millions of people. Giving a clear window into tensions that U.S. officials believe will imminently give way to a Russian invasion of Ukraine. Every indication we have is they're prepared to go into Ukraine, attack Ukraine. This direct and dire warning from the President of the United States. My sense this will happen within the next several days. Coming as the U.S. waged a full-scale diplomatic and messaging blitz. We see them add to the more than 150,000 troops that they already have arrayed along that border, even in the last couple of days. Shelling in the Donbass region sounding alarms across Western intelligence agencies. We've said for some time that the Russians might do something like this in order to justify uh, a military conflict. So we'll be watching this very closely. With the U.S. on high alert and Biden leveling this allegation. We have reason to believe that they are engaged in a false flag operation to have an excuse to go in. Blinken and White House officials making the decision to travel to the U.N. late Tuesday night, a surprise and high-stakes move on the biggest international stage. Russian missiles and bombs will drop across Ukraine. Designed to explicitly telegraph Russian intentions. Russian tanks and soldiers will advance on key targets that have already been identified and mapped out in detailed plans. And force their hand in what may be a last-ditch effort to salvage a diplomatic path. Today, 
we are laying it out in great detail with the hope that by sharing what we know with the world, we can influence Russia to abandon the path of war and choose a different path while there's still time. Just hours after Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, in Brussels to meet with NATO allies, listed his own ominous warning. We even see them stocking up their blood supp supplies. Vice President Kamala Harris set to land in Munich for her own high-stakes diplomatic engagements, all as Russia, after weeks of silence, delivered its response to U.S. security proposals meant to spark diplomatic talks, but by all appearances, instead, marking an ultimatum. Our priority is not seeing isolated issues plucked from the package of measures and then claim we've resolved all issues. And Jake, U.S. officials say they are still reviewing that 11-page Russia proposal, but there are limited, if any, areas of overlap still. Administration officials very much believe they need to keep talking. In fact, Secretary of State Antony Blinken sent a letter to his Russian counterpart asking to meet next week in Europe. Jake. All right, Phil Manningly at the White House for us. Thank you so much. The West's concerns of a possible pending invasion were heightened today due to an outbreak of violence in the Donbass region. That's an area on the Ukrainian-Russian border on the Ukraine side, which has been controlled by Russian-backed separatists since 2014. A kindergarten in that area was hit by shelling earlier this morning, by whom we do not know for sure. The British foreign minister, however, called the attack, quote, straight out of the Kremlin playbook. CNN's Jim Shudo joins me now live from the Ukrainian capital of Kyiv. And Jim, there's usually some kind of fighting in this region every day. So what was different about today's violence? You're right, Jake. This took place uh, along what's known as the line of contact, which is that between Ukrainian forces and Russian-backed forces inside Ukrainian territory. But it's been the, the site of a slow-burn war for eight years. 14,000 people have died in this war already, and shelling goes back and forth frequently and kills people, sadly. What happened today, though, and CNN's been talking to people in the region, is that that shelling increased to a degree they had not seen in some time. This particular uh, school that was hit, according to people in the area and the Ukrainian military, these shells came from the Russian-backed side of that territory, across into Ukrainian territory. Now, on the Russian-backed side, you have claims today that shells went in the other direction as well. Our Clarissa Ward went down to the site of this school where the shell struck. This is where the Ukrainian military says that one of the artillery shells hit. You can see this is a room where children would be playing. Fortunately, there was no one in this room at the time. But according to local authorities, three people who worked here. The concern is that Russia would use uh, instability in that region, trading of artillery fire and so on, as a pretext to say things are getting unstable. We have to send our Russian forces in to stabilize the situation. But, Jake, as you heard Secretary Antony Blinken at the U.N. today, that just won in a long menu of pretexts that the U.S. is concerned Russia might use or deploy in the coming days to justify an invasion. All right, Jim Shudo in Kyiv, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Today, the Russian government formally responded to proposals from the Biden administration on ways to keep peace in the region. A U.S. letter sent three weeks ago raised concerns about Russia's military buildup and large-scale military drills and left the door open for Ukraine to join NATO. CNN contributor Jill Doherty is live in Moscow for us. Jill, what's the response from the Kremlin? It's a essentially negative, Jake, as you might expect. And essentially, you know, it is 11 pages long. And essentially, it boils down to Russia saying, look, we have overall very serious red line 
security concerns, and the United States continues to ignore them. And the, you, the, what they say is the United States is picking and choosing, taking parts out of our ideas and uh, trying to turn them to their advantage. But it's like all the deal or no deal. And that is the problem. That's what we've been hearing for a long time. And essentially, I think you probably know this by heart by now, but, you know, one is stop NATO expansion. Don't let Ukraine and Georgia in. Uh, remove military infrastructure that would include missiles, et cetera, from the region, from those post-Soviet uh, states that have joined NATO, and then also uh, return to the boundaries from 1997 when NATO and Russia had their uh, founding act. So uh, the, one of the, I think, interesting things about this, notable things, is today, yet again, Russia made it very public. They published it. It was in newspapers, picked up on websites, etc. And, you know, mostly in these negotiations, of this type, you don't have this public diplomacy. That's usually not how this is done. So I think it's important. And as uh, one former ambassador was mentioning to me, um, you know, is this for show or do they really want to negotiate? Because this is, is not how it's usually done. Jill, what comes next? Does the U.S. send another written response back to Russia? And does any of this matter if ultimately Russia invades Ukraine? Well, I think it is important that they keep talking, very important. And amidst all of the details here, uh, there are things that are very important to keep talking about. They may be these discrete elements that the United States is paying attention to. But luckily, Russia is saying we want to continue to talk about those. Might be like nuclear weapons, etc. And that is very, very important. But it's hard to say to see how the specific discussion about Ukraine and then about this very big picture of Russian security is going to be resolved because Russia is saying, you know, the entire deal or nothing. All right, Jill Darty in Moscow, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Anxiety over a possible Russian invasion of Ukraine is not only rattling world leaders, it's making global financial markets quite jittery. What money is on the line? Plus, a terrifying truth, middle schoolers increasingly losing their lives due to laced prescription pills, how emojis could be the warning sign. Stay with us. This TBD status with Russia and Ukraine is also our money lead as investors anxiously hang on every twist and turn of this crisis. Here in the United States, the Dow finished down more than 620 points after trading in the red all day. Many are closely watching wild swings in the price of oil with modest drops and steep surges all week. Nowhere else made the people be more nervous about what's to come, of course, than in Ukraine. And CNN's Aaron Burnett is in Lviv in the western part of that country. Aaron, there's, there's already one kind of war going on, a money war, and, and Ukraine is taking some big hits. Yeah, you know, Jake, look, as part of this, their whole push and quest to join NATO, they had to do serious financial reforms, uh, which they haven't completed, right? They, they wouldn't even be ready to join NATO if they want to for a whole host of reasons. But that's been this whole push for reform for a country that was completely reliant on a few oligarchs who controlled all the natural resources uh, to a totally different sort of economy. And that is what's being crushed. So, Jake, just imagine um, if, I, if I told you that a year ago, you know, it would cost you about 10% to borrow money for a year to buy something. And now you come to me and ask for a loan for the same time for, for a year. And I tell you, it's going to cost you more than 20% to get that loan. 
Well, that's what's happened to Ukraine, to the government of Ukraine for all of their borrowing. Right right now, Bloomberg estimates they need a, at least $5 billion to even stabilize the country. President Biden has said the U.S. is considering about a billion dollars in loan guarantees. But um, it, it's, it's, it's bad, OK? When you start seeing that happen to sovereign debt, that is a real problem if it lasts for any period of time. Vladimir Putin has already in- inflicted that damage and that pain on, on Ukraine, right? No tank has come across the border, and you've already seen that. Today, I talked to uh, the CEO of one of the largest tech companies in Ukraine. That's the industry that's actually leading, transforming this country to being something bigger and more modern and better. And here's what he had to say about the crisis. For Russia, they try to use this situation and make more panic than, than real uh, threat to the country, right? And this panic, this panic is, is more threat. And the, the fact that investors could the probably... The panic is the problem. Yeah, the panic is the problem. So the, the fact that investors may leave the country, it's, it's more problem for us than uh, Russian tanks at our borders. And Jake, look, he's trying to put a, a good spin on things. He says his company is going to keep growing. You know, they do a lot of uh, you know satellite navigation systems and software for uh, luxury German car makers and others. Um, but the situation is not good. You're seeing well over a billion dollars of money leave the country. Uh, and that is what Vladimir Putin's already done, right? Didn't have to put a tank over the border. Didn't have to fire a shot over the border north of here or anywhere else to accomplish that. And that is very significant. So I think that's just a really important part of the story to keep in mind, that there is economic warfare and that is well underway. Aaron Burnett in Western Ukraine. Thank you. Please stay safe. You can see more from Aaron tonight as she anchors out front from Ukraine. She's going to be talking to the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield. That's at 7 p.m. Eastern, only here on CNN. Uh, joining me live to discuss this and all the other twists and turns in this showdown, former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Bill Taylor, uh, and Dr. Evelyn Farkas, the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia under President Obama. Evelyn, let me start with you. President Biden says his, quote, sense is that Russia could invade Ukraine within the next several days. He says the threat of an attack is very high. Do you agree? Well, I do agree because President Biden's saying that. And frankly, you know, I'm hearing the same thing from other administration contacts who were former colleagues of mine. And we haven't seen anything coming out of the Russian to make us believe that they're not planning on some kind of military operation. So unfortunately, my answer to you is yes. Ambassador Taylor, what is the effect of public declarations like the one we heard from President Biden? Does that impact whether or not Vladimir Putin actually chooses to invade? The fact that the U.S. keeps on saying we expect he's going to do it in the next couple days. Does that detract him? Does it have any effect? Jake, I'm not sure that has any effect on him. But you're right. He's the one who's going to make the decision. And I think President Biden's right that he's ready, and Evelyn's right, he's ready to go, but he hasn't made that decision as near as we can tell, which means he can still be deterred. He can go in another direction. He can decide to back down, frankly, or blink, as we say, and he can go to negotiations. That's, what, that's the direction he should go. Has he ever done that before? Has he done that before? I'm trying to think. Like, every time I th- I, he, he builds up a troops, he goes into and seizes parts of Georgia. He seizes Crimea. Well, we don't think just this past April, uh, he built up on the Ukrainian border. President Biden called him right then, and he backed out. Uh, he pulled not all of his troops, but pulled his troops out. He came back in the fall and, that, and, and in October, November. Now he's back again. That's what we're saying now. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I think he, is, uh, he, he can be backed out. He can go. Evelyn, the White House is accusing Russia of conducting what they call Potemkin diplomacy while actually preparing for war. Potemkin is, of course, a reference to the 18th century Russian Potemkin villages, which were just facades without anything behind them. 
Um, do you view Russia's written response to the U.S. regarding its security concerns? Uh, did, did that contain anything, the Russian response, to indicate that there is a truly serious diplomatic solution here? No. And I think, you know, all of this posturing, you know, having President Putin meeting with his foreign minister and saying, OK, go, like a king, you know, go and see whether there can be some diplomacy um, in my vassal. Um, it, it's 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 really odd. And at the same time, you know, while that he's saying these things, it's kind of a mockery because of what they're doing militarily. Um, no, I don't see them backing down in terms of you know, their response. Um, They're perfectly happy to talk to us about what they call secondary issues, you know, arms control, nuclear and conventional. Um, But they they now appear to really want to control Ukraine. And it may may not be enough for them to even control just some part of it. You know, I'm, I'm afraid that what I'm hearing coming out of the administration is something more than just grabbing the Donbass region, which is what I had kind of anticipated he might do as a way of getting more leverage in the negotiations, specifically with Ukraine. Ambassador Taylor, Western uh, officials um, have been closely watching the construction of a tactical pontoon bridge over this key river in Belarus, which they said was highly unusual. Sources now say the bridge appears to be gone. Um, What do you think is going on there? Jake, President Putin has told his generals to do everything, everything short of going across the the border. So, you know, figure out a way to get across that bridge. Move the blood, as as, uh, Secretary uh, uh, Austin Austin, said. Um, Move everything into place, but don't go across, because he's not yet decided. He knows that the cost to him will be very, very high. But why put up this pontoon bridge and then take it down, apparently? Good question. Because maybe the co- maybe he's figured, Jake, that it is too high, that the cost is too high, that the price he'll have to pay is just too much for whatever benefits he's going to get. And maybe he's decided he's not going to go across. I don't know. It's up to him. That's what we have to decide. Evelyn, uh, we, we've seen warnings for weeks about Moscow possibly staging events, false flag, flag attacks and like, to generate a pretext for invasion. Today, Ukrainian armed forces and Russian-backed separatists reported shellfire in separatist-controlled Donbass region. Video and images confirmed by CNN showed that a shell hit a preschool in Ukrainian-controlled territory. Thankfully, no kids were in there. It, it's not clear who is to blame. Could this be a Russian false flag operation? Well, Jake, these are the types of things the Russians would contemplate and would actually put into place as a false flag operation. In this case, I think that they probably need a bigger pretext so you might remember they were talking in Moscow, the, the defense minister Shoigu was talking about chemical weapons and how the Americans were going to bring chemical weapons into Donbass, into eastern Ukraine. That kind of false flag operation I could see where they pretend they found chemical weapons that NATO or, or, or Ukrainians put in there. Um, or we've also heard them mention something about mass graves. And those are the types of things I think they need to be a little bit bigger. All right, Ambassador Bill Taylor, Dr. Evelyn Farkaso, thank you so much to both of you. Appreciate it. I want to go back to the ground in Ukraine. We're seeing as Clarissa Ward has just returned uh, from her tour with the Ukrainian military, and she joins us live from Kiev. Um, Clarissa, you went to the area in Donbass hit by shelling in eastern Ukraine earlier today. Uh, we played a little bit of the video uh, from your stop in the preschool. Tell us what you saw. 
So, Jake, just to give you a sense of how much the Ukrainians wanted us to see this and, 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 and how unusual a situation it was, it's very rare for them to take journalists to the front line at night. Uh, but that's what they did because they wanted the world to see what happened at this kindergarten. Uh, 8.45 this morning, two shells landed, according to the Ukrainian military and also some employees and staff who we talked to on the ground. One of the rooms that you can see, this sort of playroom filled with children toys uh, had a huge gaping hole uh, allegedly where that that shell had come through. There were toys scattered everywhere. By the grace of God, Jake, there were no children in the room when that shell hit. The children were in a different part of the building having breakfast. We interviewed a teacher who said that she immediately moved them away from any windows into a sort of internal corridor. She said that they told the young kids that it was a game, basically, that they were that, that it was a, a make-believe uh, game of sorts. And so they weren't as frightened. But some of the older children understood what was going on because, of course, they do live near the front lines and and they are experienced with hearing the sound of heavy artillery. However, just to give you a sense of perspective, you might see ceasefire violations on any given day in this area of Luhansk. You might see, according to the OSCE, to sort of monitors on the ground there yesterday, 129 violations. Today, there were more than 400. So this was really a massive spike in activity. And what happened at the kindergarten, I think, is really a very ominous warning about what could quickly uh, escalate into a situation beyond anyone's control, because clearly the situation on the ground is getting more tense. People are getting more trigger happy. There's a lot more confusion and and a lot more emotion as well. We have been used to talking to people who seem relatively calm, relatively relaxed. They are used to uh, seeing, uh, you know, acts of aggression. They're used to living in the shadow of Russia. But today you really had a sense that people were more nervous. We could hear some shelling uh, as we were on the ground doing a live shot with John King. The Ukrainian military immediately yanked us out of there, put us on a bus, and, you know, we're lucky we've been flown now back uh, by the Ukrainian military to here in Kiev. But for the people living in that town, the shelling continues, the fear continues, Jake. Larissa, how exactly might NATO leaders think Putin could use this incident as a justification for an invasion? So I've been talking exclusively about what we saw, the results of what was happening on the sort of Ukrainian military side of, uh, of this front line. On the other side, uh, in this sort of pro-Russian separatist region, they claimed that there was also uh, a, larger, a large amount of shelling going on as well. And President Putin has said many times before, and we've seen it in other conflicts in 2008 in Georgia, he's been handing out Russian passports like candy, some 600,000 uh, in those pro Uh, Russian separatist areas. And so he will often invoke any kind of act of aggression or he may, you know, there may be some kind of a false flag operation as U.S. intelligence services have predicted might happen. And then say, you know what, now we have to go in. We have to protect our people. It's our job uh, to make sure that Russian speakers and ethnic Russians and Russian nationals, indeed, for those who have passports, are protected. 
And so that's what happens often in these scenarios. And that's why as the situation becomes more volatile and as you're seeing this huge uptick in the number of ceasefire violations, uh, the situation becomes much more ominous and much more tense indeed, Jake. All right. Clarissa Ward in Ukraine. Thank you so much. And stay safe, please. Coming up, is it too soon to throw out those masks? What living with COVID should look like as we enter the endemic phase of the pandemic. Stay with us. In our health lead, the leaders of more states and cities are saying it is time to start living in the endemic phase of COVID. Authorities across the country rapidly removing restrictions and ending mandates as the Omicron wave that slammed the U.S. earlier this year recedes. But as CNN's Nick Watt reports for us now, Dr. Anthony Fauci says... Some of these new moves may be premature and risky. Just a couple of hours from now, the governor of the most populous state in the nation will lay out his post-pandemic plan. We've been working on it for more than a month, our endemic plan. In Philly, you no longer need to prove you're vaccinated to eat inside a restaurant. In Seattle, soon you'll be able to go into restaurants, bars, gyms without proving vaccination or a recent negative test. We are not entirely out of the woods yet, but there is a clear path forward. Here in Los Angeles, school kids no longer need to mask up outside, still required inside classrooms. Michigan, no longer urging masks in most indoor settings, including classrooms. It's understandable why people want to take masks off the kids, but right now, given the level of activity that we have, It is risky. The national average daily COVID-19 case count still high, but just fell 42% in a week. Numbers in the hospital down 25% in just a week and almost back below pre-Omicron levels. Just for awareness for now, Japanese researchers say the BA2 subvariant of Omicron needs more close monitoring spreads faster and also might cause more severe disease and increase the need for vaccine boosters. It's a preprint study. Meantime, a possible fourth shot of Pfizer and Moderna or a third shot of the J&J. Is being very carefully monitored in real time and recommendations, if needed, will be updated according to the data as it evolves. Now, as I just mentioned, yesterday was the first day here in Los Angeles where kids did not have to wear masks outside at school. My kids reported back from the schoolyard that about half of kids were still wearing them, either because they're still scared of the virus or they said it just feels weird not to be wearing a mask after so long. Listen, one thing is very clear. Our exit from COVID is not going to be the flip of a light switch. It's going to be a gradual slide on the dimmer. Jake. Nick Watt, I hope you paid your kids for that journalism. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Coming up, outrage after police officers break up a fight between two teenagers in a New Jersey mall, but only the black teenager was pinned to the ground and handcuffed. His mother is talking now. Stay with us. In our national lead, growing outrage after a fight between teenagers at a mall in Bridgewater Township, New Jersey, was broken up by police officers, but the two teens were treated in vastly different ways. One teen is white, the other black. Yeah, 
Here you can see the kids are arguing. It quickly turns into a brawl. The police come to break it up. And the male officer tackles the black teen. The female officer sits the white teen down. The black eighth grader is handcuffed. The white teen is not. Let's get right to Athena Jones. Athena has the... Police department offered any explanation of why such different treatment of these two kids. Hi, Jake. Well, no explanation from the Bridgewater Township Police Department, but they did uh, make a post on Facebook where they said, we recognize that this video has upset some members of the community and we're calling for an internal affairs investigation. They're asking the Somerset County Prosecutor's Office to assist in this matter, and that's what's happening. The Somerset County Prosecutor's Office will be working closely with New Jersey's uh, Attorney General. Uh, Their Internal Affairs Department will be working closely with the New Jersey Attorney General's Office, looking at the fight itself and, of course, the police response to it. Both the police department and the prosecutor's office are asking members of the community to share with them and get in touch with them if they have video of that incident. That video was shot by one of the teen witnesses on site, but there are other videos. There were other cell phones out, and so they're asking for the public's help with that, but they're not explaining or commenting on these, these officers' actions. What do the parents of the kids have to say? Well, the, the, the child is named, the 14-year-old uh, black teen is named uh, Kai. His mother, Ebony, both of them appeared on Don Lemon Tonight uh, last night. Here is what his mother had to say. I hate to say this, but if it wasn't for race, then what is it? What, what made them tackle my son, not the other kid? What made them be so aggressive with my son and not the other kid? Why is the other kid sitting down looking at my son be humiliated and put into cuffs. And she went on to say that she's angry, and she's not the only person who's angry. The NAACP is calling for these officers involved to be removed pending an investigation. And this all goes to the larger point, Jake, of the idea that a lot of folks say that this kind of video points directly to the notion that there is that racial bias, even unconscious racial bias, is deeply embedded into policing in America and into American society. I mean, you can look at the Ahmaud Arbery case going on in Georgia right now. And so this idea of, of black men and boys in particular being criminalized and demonized and, and considered the aggressors and, and dangerous and suspicious, this goes back a long way in American history. And, and folks are, have had enough. Athena okay. Jones, thanks so much. Appreciate it. The U.S. is in the worst mega drought in 1,200 years. In 30 years, sea levels are going to rise another foot on the coasts on average. So why are some states making it more difficult or even impossible for local authorities to enact measures to try to do their part to slow down climate change? Stay with us. In our Earth Matters series now, one of the easiest ways to tackle the climate crisis could start in your kitchen. Experts tell CNN that switching your gas stove to electric will slash your home's release of planet-warming gases such as methane or carbon dioxide. And now cities such as New York and San Francisco are making plans to ban gas appliances in newly constructed homes. But as CNN's Renee Marsh reports, natural gas companies see gas bans as a burn, and they're using lawmakers to try to keep the pilot light on. We do not have water. In the dry and sparse alfalfa fields of Kaywood Farms in Pinal County, Arizona, the effects of climate change are undeniable. Nancy Kaywood's family farm of nearly a century is struggling to survive Arizona's two-decade-long mega drought. Our future is kind of bleak until, you know, we get through this drought. 
This canal is supposed to supply water to farmers and their crops, but for as far as the eye can see, it is completely dry and filled with these really dry tumbleweeds. Water has actually not flown through this canal for the last nine months, all due to the drought. Despite the devastating impact of climate change, states like Arizona are enacting laws that are slowing climate action. Natural gas lobbyists have worked behind the scenes to craft the nation's first law forbidding cities from banning natural gas in Arizona homes and buildings. Now lobbyists are pushing for the law across the country. A recording of the natural gas lobby's leadership call obtained by Energy and Policy Institute, a fossil fuel watchdog group, reveals the strategy. Home builders, laborers, and agriculture farmers specifically are the more effective voices for us. We have used them to testify in cases in front of the legislatures as well as at city councils. Tucson's mayor, Regina Romero, says breaking state law is costly. They could retain our um, state-shared sales taxes. For the city of Tucson, that would be about a $130 million hit. Nearly two dozen Republican-controlled states across the country have passed preemptive laws forbidding natural gas bans, preventing local governments from drastically cutting greenhouse gases. Residential and commercial greenhouse gas emissions from heating and stovetops made up 13 percent of total U.S. emissions in 2019. When you have state governments that are really cutting off local government authority at the knees, that means that local governments aren't going to be able to combat climate change in the way that makes the most sense. Protests in Florida as a bill that cuts financial incentives, making rooftop solar less affordable, moves through the Republican-controlled legislature. Emails obtained by Energy and Policy Institute show a lobbyist for state utility company Florida Power and Lights gave Republican state senator Jennifer Bradley a draft bill for solar legislation. There is no intent to put our solar industry uh, out of business. Two days later, the utility's parent company, Nextera Energy, donated $10,000 to a political committee affiliated with Bradley. Four weeks after Bradley introduced the bill, another $10,000. State finance records show. In a statement, Bradley only said she introduced the bill because, I believe it is good for my constituents. The real-life consequences of the politics inside these state houses are scarce water, dry lands, and people in danger of losing their livelihoods. My granddad farmed it, my dad farmed it, my son farms it. I'm very involved with it out here, and to lose our land would be very painful. Well, Jake Bradley's spokeswoman avoided CNN's questions about the timeline of events for when she received the draft bill, introduced it, and received political donations. As for the natural gas lobby, an American Gas Association spokesperson acknowledged that the audio does sound like the group was directly lobbying state governments to enact these laws. Despite that, they maintain that they are not directly lobbying for these specific pieces of legislation. We also reached out to the Arizona lawmakers who introduced the law forbidding gas bans, but no response at this point. Jake. I'm sure it's just a coincidence. Renee Marsh, thank you so much. Appreciate right. it. It's a family affair. A judge rules that Donald Trump and some of his adult children are going to have to sit down and answer questions under oath about their money. Stay with us. Welcome to the lead on Jake Tapper. This hour, shocker on the ice as Russian figure skater Kamila Valieva flames out in her final Beijing performance. Maybe the pressure from the doping scandal got to her. Then a horrifying reality 
Middle schoolers increasingly losing their eyes, lives due to laced prescription pills some are buying on popular social media apps. Why emojis could be the first sign something's wrong. And leading this hour, President Biden says the writing's on the wall. Russia is ready to attack Ukraine. This, as America's top diplomat, goes before the United Nations Security Council to warn the world Russia may lie to justify its invasion. And there is concern shelling in a part of eastern Ukraine may actually be one of these supposed false flags. As CNN's Matthew Chance reports, Ukrainian leadership is eager to show that their forces are ready for an attack by the Russians at any time. Ukraine's president in full battle fatigues, greeting troops on the eastern front. It could soon be facing a Russian onslaught, according to U.S. officials. A senior Ukrainian source tells CNN they've already been briefed by U.S. intelligence to expect an attack, if not a full invasion, in days. No doubt we need to be ready for any scenario, the Ukrainian foreign minister says. Over recent weeks, the president, the government have all worked to prepare the country for any event. And Ukraine's position is strong, he adds. It will have to be if Russia decides to unleash the powerful military force. It's massed near Ukraine's borders. These rockets were fired in neighboring Belarus, where Russian defense officials say joint military drills are still underway and fueling U.S. concerns that Russia is poised. Mr. President, how, how high is the threat of a Russian invasion right now? It's very high. It's very high because they have not... They have not moved any of their troops out. They've moved more troops in, number one. Number two, we have reason to believe that they are engaged in a false flag operation. They have an excuse to go in. Every indication we have is they're prepared to go into Ukraine, attack Ukraine. It was a dire warning repeated at the UN Security Council by the US Secretary of State. U.S. officials seem to have made a strategic decision to go public with intelligence as Russia, in Secretary Blinken's words, steps down the path to war. First, Russia plans to manufacture a pretext for its attack. This could be a violent event that Russia will blame on Ukraine or an outrageous accusation that Russia will level against the Ukrainian government. We don't know exactly the form it will take. It could be a fabricated so-called terrorist bombing inside Russia, the invented discovery of a mass grave, a staged drone strike against civilians, or a fake, even a real, attack using chemical weapons. It's an extraordinary list of possibilities, and one being wholly rejected by the Kremlin, which is accusing the US of hysteria and releasing more defence ministry images of Russian troops returning to their bases after completing drills near Ukraine. Our military has camped on its own territory, says the Russian foreign minister, held drills, took down their tents, boarded the trains, then loaded their hardware and started leaving, he says. But the hysterics are still going on. This is where the real escalation is, he adds. But there is dangerous escalation on the ground as well. This is what Ukrainian officials say was a preschool hit by artillery shells fired by Russian-backed rebels. The rebels say Ukrainian government forces pounded their residential areas too. And now Ukrainian officials say there's more shelling from the rebel side. 
sending CNN this video of what they say is a hit on a residential building as tensions near the front lines threaten to spiral out of control. Well, Jake, despite the, uh, despite the warnings from the United States and the spike in violence between government forces and uh, Russian-backed rebels, there are still hopes for a diplomatic path, with Secretary of State Blinken proposing to his Russian counterpart to meet in Europe next week in order to try and have discussions to discuss uh, uh, avoiding an all-out war. All right, Matthew Chance in Kiev, Ukraine, thank you so much. The United States is threatening severe consequences for Belarus if an attack on Ukraine is launched on Belarusian territory. CNN's Frederick Plekin joins us now live from Minsk, the capital of Belarus. And Fred, you were able to witness joint Russian and Belarusian military drills up close today, the first time international media was able to do so. But obviously, we want to underline this point. Russia wants the world to see this. Yeah, the Russians certainly do want the world to see this, but it was still it was still quite important to be there just uh, for the fact that you could for the first time actually see these Russian forces up close. That, of course, the U.S. are threatening uh, Ukraine, not just here from Belarusian territory, but also from Russian territory as well. See the kind of military hardware that they have and also how they work together with the Belarusian forces. Because the U.S. has said that the exercises that are going on here uh, in uh, Belarus at the moment are really dangerous because there's tens of thousands of Russian forces here and, of course, Belarus under Alexander Lukashenko is very much in the corner of the Russians. Some of the weapon systems that we saw, Jake, were very sophisticated fighter jets, strike aircraft, but then also the Iskander M missile system, which from Belarusian territory could easily hit the, the uh, capital of Ukraine, could easily hit Kiev. And we have to also have to keep in mind as well, Jake, that the fastest way to actually get to Kiev would be via Belarus. So a really dangerous situation as far as the U.S. is concerned. And I put those concerns to Alexander Lukashenko and said whether he supported what Russia was currently doing towards Ukraine. Here's what he had to say. We have an agreement between Belarus and Russia. We have practically formed here a united Russia-Belarus group. A united army, that is, you might say. And this is our official position. Please take it into account as we're taking into account your position. And on a broader subject, what are you doing here, thousands of kilometers away? Alexander Lukashenko, they're obviously equating us uh, with, uh, with the U.S. government there uh, in that final part of that answer. But certainly he is saying that he's very much in the corner of Vladimir Putin, in the corner uh, of Russia. At the same time, however, uh, the Russians are saying that those drills obviously are going to come to an end uh, fairly soon. Nevertheless, a lot of Russian forces here on the territory uh, of Belarus, Jake. And Fred, the Biden administration is, is openly concerned that Belarusian territory could be used theoretically to invade mm. Ukraine. Did President Lukashenko give any assurances that Russian troops will definitely leave Belarus after the drills are done. Yeah, so that was that was the other really interesting part from what we heard from Alexander Lukashenko today. Both the Russians and the Belarusians have said that the Russian forces are going to leave. However, what he said today was they might leave shortly after the exercises end on Sunday, but it could also take a month. It could also take longer. It wasn't something that he was going to commit a time frame to. And that, of course, in itself is something that could be quite concerning to the United States, that simply it's absolutely unclear when this massive force is going to leave. And that, of course, leaves a question open what could happen uh, uh, until uh, the, the day arrives that, that they do leave. And so... 
certainly really hard to get a straight answer out of it, and that's something that really does add to that ambiguity uh, that you're feeling here uh, in the entire region, Jake. All right, CNN's Frederick Pleitkin, live from Minsk, Belarus. Thank you so much. Joining us now live to discuss Democratic Congressman Gregory Meeks of New York, who's the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee and recently led a congressional delegation to visit Ukraine. Mr. Chairman, good to see you as always. I want to start with our correspondents reporting that you just heard from Minsk. What, what goes through your mind when you hear the Belarusian president criticized the U.S. and NATO presence in countries such as Poland or Lithuania, Latvia or Estonia? Well, we know that the uh, Belarus president is a dictator. Uh, and so he's like Putin in that regard. So that concerns me. And clearly from his words, he's standing strongly with Putin. And so I get concerned about the Belarusian uh, army or militaries happening from Belarus. And that's why the president of the United States has said, if that happens, then there will be severe consequences for Belarus, uh, which has to be. But it concerns me greatly that you have and clearly see the aggression that's coming from the Russians uh, on Belarus, where this training is taking place, allegedly, uh, is taking place. Uh, the best way to show that they're not the aggressor, don't want to cross that line, is to get the troops out of there. And, and Jake, you know, to, them to say that they are removing troops when we have satellites, we can see where the troops are uh, and whether or not and how many people. In fact, there's more people uh, in Belarus doing these drills now than there were a week ago. So um, and we're not going to play uh, the sucker punch thing where they look at one part of the country and say we're pulling out a few people there and adding others and equipment somewhere else uh, to, where they'd be ready to attack. We're not going to mm. fall for that. And so the president of the United States is doing exactly the right thing and threading this needle and still talking and giving diplomacy a chance to work. Uh, today, uh, Mr. Chairman, today the British Prime Minister accused Russia of staging a false flag operation, creating a pretext to invade Ukraine by shelling a kindergarten in Donbass and, uh, Donbass and then accusing Ukraine of doing it. Uh, do you agree? Was that a, a false flag? What, what intelligence or information might you have? Yeah, I agree. I mean, the president has said this all along. You know, for a while back, uh, you know, weeks ago, we were told in classified sections, sessions that this was a possibility. Uh, and then the president has decided that we better make it public because we don't want people to be shocked. We're trying to put out Putin's playbook uh, so that people will understand what they're doing. And hopefully that will cause them to deter also. So what was classified maybe three weeks ago, the president has decided to talk about it himself because what our intelligence shows uh, and we want uh, all of the world to know what's taking place so that we don't fall for any of the games that Putin is playing. Our reporter, Fred Pleitkin, also reported on the massive Russian and Belarusian uh, military drills the first time international media has seen this up close. Of course, we should remember that Russia has a motive for sharing this kind of access. Um, you told CNN earlier this week that you can't get inside Putin's head. Do you think, however... Do you think he is indeed going to pull the trigger and invade Ukraine? Look, I still don't know what Putin's thinking. I don't know if Putin has made that decision yet or not. I know that we've got to be prepared either way. Keep the lane open for diplomacy. Keep the lane open to give him the opportunity to pull back those troops and de-escalate. But don't be fooled. Be ready for him to cross. And if he crosses... As the president has indicated, the devastating sanctions will take place that will be unified between us 
our NATO allies, our EU allies, Canada, uh, UK, uh, as well as uh, Australia. We will all be working together with devastating uh, sanctions uh, on Russia. So it's not thinking one and, and leaving the other. We've got to be prepared either way. The door for diplomacy is open if he chooses to take it. But if he chooses to go another way, there will be huge consequences uh, uh, on, on Russia that would be put forth in a multilateral way. Uh, and, uh, and I've been confirmed of that when I went to Brussels also to talk to our NATO allies there, had chance to talk to a number of the ambassadors from our allied countries. Uh, and they are in lockstep with the intelligence that we all see and in lockstep and working in unison should uh, Russia decide to invade the sovereign country of Ukraine. All right, the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Congressman Gregory Meeks of New York. Thank you so much, sir. We have some breaking news. A judge has told Donald Trump that he has to sit and answer questions about his money under oath, and it will be a family affair. Then, if you pull the thread, will the entire narrative unravel? China denying accusations that their Olympic apparel has ties to labor and prison camps. That's ahead as we once again go behind China's wall. We have some breaking news for you in our politics lead. A judge has ruled that former President Donald Trump, Donald Trump Jr., and Ivanka Trump all must sit for a deposition in a New York civil fraud case. Earlier today, the New York State Attorney General Letitia James argued that the former president knows much more about his finances than he's letting on. Exhibit A, Trump's lengthy statement Tuesday, where he went on and on bragging about a higher net worth than what his accounting firm reports. But on Monday, Trump attorneys said repeatedly, in a court filing that the former president denies knowledge of his finances. Let's bring in CNN's Paula Reed. Paula, what did the judge say have to say about Trump's arguments trying to get out of being subpoenaed? Jake, this judge issuing a fiery opinion after an hours-long contentious hearing earlier this morning, the judge concluded that the attorney general has a clear right to interview principals of a business she has been investigating after she found, quote, copious evidence of crimes. Now, Trump's attorneys have argued that this investigation by the New York attorney general is politically motivated, pointing to statements she's made about wanting to pursue Trump. The judge rejected that. Jake, he said, look, the attorney general had the same First Amendment right that Donald Trump had on the campaign trail. He also noted that Donald Trump has been investigated by the attorney general's office in the past, looking at investigations into his university and his foundation. And the judge concluded, look, this was not started with personal animus. The origin of this investigation is comments made by longtime Trump associate Michael Cohen, who publicly said the Trumps were cooking the books. And the judge also rejected another argument made by Trump's legal team that by sitting for a civil deposition, he could open himself up potentially to criminal liability. The judge noting that Trump's other son, Eric, invoked his Fifth Amendment right over 500 times during his deposition. And of course, Trump and his other two children would have the same option. The judge also took aim at a statement from the Trump organization. Uh, Tell us about that. That's right. Earlier this week, Trump's longtime accounting firm came out and said that we can no longer rely on a decade's worth of statements that they had made about the Trump organization's finances. The Trump organization then came out with a statement, Jake, suggesting that that effectively rendered the investigations by the district attorney and the attorney general moot. 
Now here the judge got really colorful, Jake. While he said the other arguments about political bias and other potential criminal liability, those were plausible, he called this quote preposterous. He compared it to George Orwell, Humpty Dumpty, and alternative facts. Now we've learned that Trump intends to appeal this decision. If he is not successful with that appeal, ultimately, he will of course have the option to invoke his Fifth Amendment right if and when he sits for a deposition. All right, Paula Reid, thank you so much. Let's jump into this with my august panel. Alyssa, let me start with you because you work closely with Trump. Um, do you think he uh, or maybe people around him are regretting that thousand-word statement on Tuesday in which he talked about how much he did know about his finances? Yeah, I imagine his lawyers are regretting that statement about now. I mean, I expect that you're going to see the Trumps try to draw out this 21-day period through appeals and different measures to try to delay um, and just resort to delay tactics. But ultimately, this is going to likely come down to them all pleading the fifth. But I would note this. Um, not only are, you know, is the retired former president watching this closely from Florida, I would also note that potential 2024 Republican candidates, I believe, are playing, paying very close attention to this. There are many people who are gearing up considering to run, and they're looking for that lane of an opening where Trump's weakened and they could kind of come in as the person. If you're a Mike Pompeo, a Mike Pence, this opens a window to you if it goes further. And Gloria, Trump has bragged uh, about exaggerating in the past. In his, lying. In his, in his, <laughs> well, yes. It, uh, he told on himself in his own book, The Art of the Deal. He wrote, quote, a little hyperbole never hurts. People want to believe that something is the biggest and the greatest and the most spectacular. I call it truthful hyperbole. It's an innocent form of exaggeration and a very effective form of promotion. The, the problem, of course, is that you can't do that like in a court of law. You can't do it uh, when it comes to official accounting uh, numbers. So the person who wrote that for Donald Trump and who wrote the art of the deal for Tony Donald Schwartz. Trump, Tony Schwartz, <laughs> and I interviewed, interviewed him, others interviewed him, and he made it up because he couldn't figure out how to get around the Trump lying. So he came out with this phrase, truthful hyperbole. After he told Trump about it, and Trump was like, love. oh, that's <laughs> love great. I, I love that. <laughs> and Schwartz wasn't sure that Trump really cared or knew what it meant or whatever. But he said later, it's a contradiction in terms. It's a way of saying it's a lie, but who cares? Well, yeah. And well, that's exactly what it is. It's well, a lie. Even though Trump would be able to plead the fifth, I have to think that the concern is that he won't because we know that over and over again, or that he'll do it sometimes, but that he will get himself in trouble because we know that the idea of his business and the idea of him being the greatest businessman is so important to him, right? Like, that's why he put out that thousand-word statement saying, oh, no, look how r I'm actually richer than you think. Um, like, I, I think that has to be the concern at this moment is that even with the option to like protect yourself uh you know trump may not take that option and your your question to pharaoh was exactly right does he regret or do the people around him regret <laughs> yeah i don't think he regrets anything right. ever. that he has ever said publicly <laughs> especially when it is a truthful hyperbole right he he loves this stuff and i think the problem is for the country as well as republicans you talk about how maybe they're looking at this, the 2024 folks, to see if there's any opening. As long as MAGA supporters look at him and say anything that he says, you know, I'm going to eat it up. And anything that goes against him is just people going against Trump and they're never going to leave him. It's going to be a problem for them to find what what lane. 
Right. And there is the factor that I think is true, which is the more the legal walls close in around him, the more likely he is mm-hmm. to run in 2024. Mm-hmm. He wants the full levers of the federal government to fight any attacks he sees coming And to protect him. him. Right. If right. he were to win. Right. right. You're president. So uh, speaking of uh, the Trump era, um, there was one moment this week that was very interesting in terms of trying to rewrite the history of the Trump era. You might remember the criminal justice reform bill uh, called the First Step Act. Here is one of the possible 2024 presidential candidates, uh, Republican Senator Tom Cotton of, of Arkansas, talking about this bill as he was blocking the confirmation votes for eight U.S. attorneys. It's your party that voted in lockstep for the First Step Act. Democrats did the First Step Act. Donald Trump signed it into law. Yes, it's true that President Trump signed the First Step Act. The First Step Act was the worst mistake of the Trump administration. It's your party that voted in lockstep for the First Step Act. Cotton was one of the 12 Republicans who voted against the First Step Act. But this was, as I recall, a huge achievement for Donald Trump, negotiated Mm -hmm. partly by Jared Kushner. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yes, Democrats went along with it, but Republicans went along with it, too. I mean, you were with the administration at the time. Right. I think that was kind of an an artful way of Tom Cotton saying he's always been on the the hard line side of being against this. But, I mean, he had to know this was a totally Republican-backed initiative that we were able to get Cory Booker and others on. But something that's interesting, it's something I'm incredibly proud of from the Trump administration, but Trump has actually at times distanced himself from right. it. Because he wants to balance, like Tucker Carlson hates this bill, he's in the Tom Cotton camp on it, and I could see him actually walking away if that becomes a primary issue. He wants to have it both ways, right? As, Who does? As, as Donald Trump. Donald Trump. As, as he always does. And you're right, it was something that was touted. I remember you know, thinking, wow, maybe bipartisanship can be a possibility under Trump. And what I find so ironic is that in the attack to the Democrats, they, he talked about, Cotton talked about Democrats being anti-law enforcement. What was he doing? You talked about it at the beginning. He was blocking the confirmation of U.S. attorneys. Where is he on well, January I, 6th? I mean, I want to ask hypocrisy. If, if Donald Trump really supported it, uh, Jared Kushner supported it. That doesn't mean necessarily yeah. that Donald Trump really supported it, but he let Jared... Yes. He let Jared do well, he it. He signed it, it into was, law. It was yes, really, because, right. because when it worked yeah, for him, he yeah. could take the credit yeah. for it. Yeah. But do you think he was out there pushing it, for this? Well, it, first it was really I don't think all, so. Yeah, it was really a Jared project because Jared's father had been to prison. It That's was very right. important well, I, to well, Jared. Well, was it? I mean, you were there. You were there. Jerron Smith was the real person. Jared was involved, but Jerron doesn't get involved. What was his job at the White House? He was a deputy assistant for domestic policy. Yeah, but great guy. I don't think Trump is a champion of it. But wasn't it also that Jared had had convinced President Trump that this would help him shore up minority votes? Yeah, that it would help. Yes, this Mm -hmm. along with supporting HBCUs and other things like that, this would help him to appeal to black voters. But Trump has always, I mean, he talked about having the death penalty for drug dealers. Like Trump is someone who is very, you know, from that 80s, 90s, tough on crime. Like that that has all tough on crime, certain crimes. Yeah, um, that's always been Trump. Um, keeping with our Trump theme, uh, Republican <laughs> Senator Marco uh, Rubio of Florida told CNN's Manu Raju and Steve Contorno about uh, his feelings about Donald Trump. Quote, First of all, he's a Floridian, so I need his vote. But beyond that, I mean, he's brought a lot of people and energy into the Republican uh, Party. Now, we do all, of course, remember 2015, 2016, Rubio called Trump a con man, said Trump would be a disaster for America. Um, wh- how do you uh, how do you view this because look he's running for re-election marco rubio 
I don't see any political upside to attacking Trump. Agreed. And I actually appreciate that Rubio was upfront. Like, he's a Florida voter and I want his vote. Like, say it out loud. Don't need to dance around the fact that he wants Trump's support. And that he brought energy. That's that's not disputable. Rubio is also highly popular, especially with the Cuban community in uh, southern Florida. Um, but he needs Trump's vote. There's no, you don't win Florida as a Republican without Trump's support. So I'm, I'm not surprised by it at all. Look, you know, Ivanka decided she wasn't going to run. So the field is open for Rubio. The former president's held a fundraiser for Marco Rubio. But all of us remember that debate. Do you remember that debate where, <laughs> where Rubio said, and you know what they say about guys with small hands? Yeah. Was that a debate or was that? It was a debate. It was, was a it? debate. Yeah. Boy. And Rubio got smaller and smaller and smaller as a result. It's when he, he wanted well, to he, he, Trump. He had been Trump trying Trump. to take the high road. Yes. Right. And then that wasn't working. And then he went in the low road and that really didn't work. And that, that, that wasn't, wasn't working for him either. And that was yeah. clearly the problem with so many right. of the Republicans that went after Trump. They didn't know how to do it. Mm. And I, I also think if Trump runs, well, if Trump runs, probably no one else will, will run. But that is going to be, well, that, but that is going to, if it happens, if Trump runs and others run, that is, I still think that's going to be a major problem for anyone trying to go after Trump. Because I don't think he's going to be in any way careful about what he says or how he goes after people. But I agree with Gloria. I think people will run even if Trump runs, but they will never win by attacking him and going the attack dog route. I think a Mike exactly. Pence will very wow. strongly consider running even if he does. I think a Pompeo might. I think there's really? uh, Chris Christie and some Pompeo others. Pompeo might run? They're, they're building, <laughs> he's building out an operation for I can see look, the anti-Trump dude, people, the Larry Hogan's or the Chris Christie's possibly. You know, look, no? if, if anyone goes against Trump, Trump will scorch the earth I with agree. Them, I and totally he will agree. tell his but they MAGA base. There, they were, right? ne- but and it didn't work there. for them. And it didn't. Work. It didn't and work they had for them to though. Come back and the, say, oh, a, he's a good guy. There's a lane to run as like <laughs> I'm running as our better angels, the better angels of the Republican. But are there party. enough people within the Republican Party oh, that will support that? I mean, <laughs> well, very not. few people are where is, you are. There was still. a poll this week that showed that half of the, or maybe it was last week, mm-hmm. half of the Republican Party voters wanted someone other than Trump. That's right. Mm-hmm. And by the way, it was That's the same right. for Democrats and Joe Biden. It was a very sizable <laughs> chunk of people did not want well, him to run for re-election either. I, and let's see what happens in the midterm elections. You know, Trump has endorsed about 85 candidates so far. Let's see how they do. If they do really well, then he can be the kingmaker mm-hmm. and people are going to be a little more scared of him. If his candidates don't do well, and don't yeah. forget, they have to take the oath to the rigged election in order for him to right. endorse them. Let's see how they do. If they do really badly then I think you've wounded the king to a degree. Well, I don't know where I read this, so I apologize for who I'm not crediting, but I thought I read somewhere that Donald Trump was considering endorsing multiple candidates in the Ohio <laughs> Senate race. We talked about this. But I forget whose reporting it was. Yeah. But it's pretty astounding just because he doesn't want to be associated with a losing Lo- candidate, a right? Yeah. Right, exactly. And on top of that, I think that he's, he, you may see him withdraw some endorsements he's already done. There have been some reporting where he yes. endorsed some individuals yeah. and then is already regretting yeah. it. So I don't know how strong his endorsement is if that's the case. And endorsement's one thing, but are you going to fundraise with them? Are you going to hold events? Are you going to appear with them? And it looks like he's not really doing that right now. He's really just sending out statements. All right, thanks to all of you. Appreciate it. China, the Chinese government denying accusations that their Olympic apparel has ties to labor and prison camps. But where is the proof that it doesn't have those ties? We're going to go behind China's wall next. Stay with us. With the Olympics ending this weekend, we now bring you the final chapter of our series Behind China's Wall, in which we go behind the fanfare and the glamour of the Olympic Games. The Chinese government obviously hoping to use the Games to distract the world 
from the Chinese government's crackdowns on freedoms, its crimes against humanity, its genocide. Forced labor programs are just part of China's repression against the Uyghurs and other Muslim minorities in that country. Hundreds of thousands of people in Xinjiang province are forced to work in cotton and other industries. Forced. And as CNN's David Culver reports, the product of that labor has been found in supply chains across the world and quite possibly in the clothing worn by the top Olympic official. China's Olympic hero, Eileen Gu, appearing in a TV commercial set in Xinjiang for Anta, the country's biggest sportswear company and the maker of China's Olympic uniforms. As Gu and her teammates wear their national Olympic gear with pride, Anta appears proud to use cotton from Xinjiang, where China is accused of forcing hundreds of thousands of Uyghur Muslims to work in cotton production and other industries. What the United States alleges is part of a much bigger state crime. Genocide has taken place uh, in Xinjiang. Beijing has repeatedly denied the accusation, while the U.S. is effectively banning all imports from Xinjiang, trying to keep forced labor products out of American stores. Companies that fail to address forced labor and other human rights abuses in their supply chains face uh, serious legal risk. Anta has said it does not allow for forced labor, but its pledge to source from Xinjiang puts the company in opposition to Western competitors like Nike and Adidas, which say they do not want to do business there. Foreign auditors were also forced to leave China, making it harder to get independent verification. It's hard to imagine that uh, substantial portions of the cotton isn't tainted with Uyghur forced labor. Anta has not responded to CNN's request for comment. You cannot miss Anta-branded clothing at these Beijing games, worn not only by Team China and President Xi Jinping, but also by International Olympic Committee officials. Rights groups and U.S. lawmakers have questioned whether the IOC could be complicit in forced labor through its partnership with ANTA and another Chinese brand, HYX Group. CNN has reached out to HYX Group as well. No response. Last month, the IOC announced the result of an independent due diligence study stating, quote, We did not find any extreme violations against our IOC supplier code, including no forced, bonded, indentured, or child labor. However, the not-for-profit coalition to end forced labor in the Uyghur region says the IOC has not provided enough detail of the audit. The world needs to have known the facts. We did not get them from the IOC. And for that reason, there will be lingering, disturbing questions as to whether Beijing 22 Winter Olympics were in fact complicit in Uyghur forced labor. The IOC standing by its due diligence study when asked by CNN Thursday. None of our products, uh, none of the production took place in Xinjiang, nor any of the input or raw materials come from that region. Despite the IOC's very public reassurance, so murky are Xinjiang supply chains that companies from China and elsewhere and customers like the IOC could be relying on Uyghur forced labor, whether they know it or not. Jake, Anta has been on a shopping spree in recent years. They now own more than two dozen athletic brands, including famous North American ones like Arcteryx and Wilson. All deny any ties to forced labor, but this has both the clothing brands and their customers struggling to navigate the unknowns in supply chain, especially, Jake, when transparency in places like here in China is constantly in question. David Culver in Beijing with Behind China's Wall. Thank you so much. It was supposed to be her golden moment, but Russian figure skater Kamila Valieva fell, and not just once, 
the shocker on the ice. That's next. In our sports lead, an Olympic shocker, Russian figure skater Kamila Valieva, who's at the center of a doping scandal after testing positive for a banned substance, finished in fourth place today after falling several times during her final Beijing performance. The 15-year-old had been hailed by many as perhaps the best women's figure skater ever after a stunning routine during the team competition. Joining us now live to discuss from Beijing, USA Today sports columnist and CNN sports analyst Christine Brennan. Christine, thanks so much for joining us. There was so much pressure on this young woman, 15 years old, after her positive test was revealed and because of the incredible expectations on her after her performance earlier in the Olympics. What, what is your reaction to how this all ended in her fourth place finish? Jake, this was so tough to watch being in the arena. The surprise, the shock of her falling apart on the ice. And then, of course, the realization, as we've discussed all week, she's 15 years old. And the weight of the world on her shoulders, the pressure of the world, the spotlight, the glare, it just got to be too much. And she is, as you said, alluding to the the poor performance mistakes on her first four jumps, including a fall. Then she kind of writes herself a little bit. And you're thinking, okay, maybe she'll get it together and at least be able to pull out the rest of the program and then know another fall. And it was as if the entire week of conversation and controversy was just on the shoulders of a 15-year-old girl. It was troubling. It was hard to watch. Frankly, it was awful. It was just um, something when you think of the Olympics, Jake, you think of joy and happiness. Instead, the sadness, the pall over the arena. Uh, I, I've covered the Olympics a long time, and it is one of the worst things that I have ever seen. Two other Russian athletes did finish in the top three, including the gold medal winner. Both share the same coach as Valieva. I mean, what's your take on, on whether or not anybody should be suspicious if they used performance-enhancing substances? Yeah, of course, we should be suspicious. We should. That doesn't mean they did it. But uh, when you've got uh, one of the skaters landing five or trying five quadruple jumps and the other doing two, that's the gold medalist, Anna Sherbakova, you know, you have to ask. Uh, they're all in the same stable. They're coached by the same people. Uh, as we know, Camilla Velieva had not one, not two, but three heart medicines inside of her body as a 15-year-old when she tested positive on Christmas Day on December 25th. So what is going on in that, uh, in that uh, camp of, of skaters? Obviously, the good news, Jake, as you know, is there will be investigations, uh, at least two now, of that program. But I think the glare of the spotlight and the world watching and the concern now around the world, maybe that and sponsors particularly, maybe it's time for people to ask these tough questions. If the sponsors start asking questions of the International Olympic Committee and the Russians, then maybe something will get done. I mean, she's 15. I don't blame her. I blame Russia. I blame Putin. Uh, Russian athletes aren't competing in this Olympics officially. They're not doing so under the Russian flag because of their previous doping controversies and previous Olympics. Then the IOC keeps giving the Russians, the adults running this program, slaps on the wrist and they keep breaking the rules. So what needs to happen for the Russian authorities to stop? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, as you know, covering uh, stories, as we all do, it, sometimes you need the big one, the one that shocks everyone, the terrible thing. I would never root for this for Valieva, the 15-year-old, of course. Our hearts go out to her, sympathy. I hope she's okay today, right now, early morning here in, in Beijing. I hope she's all right. I hope people care about her. Uh, but you can't, You maybe this is it. You can't keep, as you said, kicking the can down the road. You have to throw the book at them. 
And as I said, maybe it's the sponsors, Washington NFL team name changed because the sponsors got angry. Maybe that's it. Somebody has to get angry. Somebody has to say enough is enough. Otherwise, we're going to be talking about a similar story, Jake, you know, two and a half years in Paris and then four years in Milan. This, this has got to stop. We cannot continue to have the same conversation about the Russians cheating. In this case, not only the victims are the clean athletes out there, but one of their own, their wonderful 15-year-old, who we saw, obviously, in such distress uh, in, in the competition. It's hard to argue that the IOC has any sort of moral compass. Christine Brennan, thank you so much. Appreciate your reporting. There's one part of pandemic life that a majority of Americans want to stick around. That's ahead. And our pop culture lead, a brand new CNN series is taking a look at the accidental president and how his landmark civil rights legislation and so-called war on poverty changed the United States. Here's a preview of LBJ, Triumph and Tragedy. This administration declares unconditional war on poverty in America. It's on the one hand incredibly bold to declare war on anything, let alone poverty, which is a complicated, intractable kind of a problem that Quite importantly, social scientists in 1964 don't really understand all that well. Our chief weapons in a more pinpointed attack will be better school and better health and better homes and better training and better job opportunities. All of these increased opportunities must be open to Americans of every color. As far as the writ of federal law will run, we must abolish not some, but all racial discrimination. Here to discuss is Patrick Candelis, the director of LBJ Triumph and Tragedy, the series. Patrick, you hear President Johnson saying there that we must abolish all racial discrimination. Why was it so important for him to take up civil rights as soon as, as, soon as he became president? I think that uh, LBJ looked at uh, civil rights and poverty both as moral issues. And it, I know it surprised a lot of people that uh, early on in his legislative record, he was not a strong supporter of it. Uh, that changed in 1957. And it's really remarkable if you look at uh, what he did in passing the 64 Civil Rights Bill. He had not been elected president. Uh, can you try to imagine in modern times a president taking on such a massive massive issue before they had a mandate from the American public. So I think LBJ is completely unique in, uh, in his attempts and his accomplishments as a president. What did you learn about LBJ while making the series that, that might have surprised you the most? I, I learned a whole lot, but I mean, I was really surprised by his obsessive work ethic. Uh, I was surprised at how much of the work he did himself um, and how absolutely brilliant he was in his, his legislative um, knowledge. I mean, this is a guy in five years that passed 440 significant pieces of legislation. His 89th Congress is the most successful uh, legislative session in American history. They proposed uh, 113 laws and uh, I believe 97 passed. So, and that was LBJ working the phones himself. I mean, there were days where he was on the phone with 30 different senators. So it was amazing that he got so much accomplished in such a short period of time. And he did it with the staff. That's a fraction of what presidents have today. Of course, uh, he might be best known for his, his 
bad leadership during the Vietnam yeah. War. Uh, and and uh, but you make you make the case that regardless of the Vietnam War, he was one of the most consequential presidents in American history. Absolutely. I, th- I think there's no doubt that he is. Um, um, and I think when it comes to Vietnam, for better or worse, I think he uh, he completely shaped the America that we're all living in today, whether people know it or not. I mean, every day of your of all Americans' lives, we're, we're being touched in some way by legislation that was proposed and passed by Lyndon Johnson. Um, and he, uh, you know, things did not work out for him in Vietnam, which is one of the most amazing parts of the calls that we had access to in this documentary. You can hear his concern. You can hear his doubts in that, which is very different from his public persona and, and kind of pitching the need of a, for escalation to the country. But it's tragic because he knew this was a huge trap that he, he probably was not going to get out of. And unfortunately, yeah, you know, he was right. And it, it's pretty tragic and Shakespearean, actually. Yeah. Pat Candelis, thanks so much for your time and congratulations. The all-new CNN original series LBJ Triumph and Tragedy premieres with back-to-back episodes Sunday beginning at 9 p.m. Eastern and Pacific only on CNN. Are you looking for a longer weekend? Pack your bags. One country just announced they are switching to a four-day work week. Who is it? We'll tell you. Stay with us. And our money lead now, if you work remotely and you love perks like wearing pajama pants instead of real pants, you're in the majority. Pew researchers found 60% of people who work from home want to stay remote even when the pandemic is over. That's up from 54% in 2020. And as COVID forces a shift to more flexible work, Belgium is now transitioning to a four-day work week. To sweeten the deal, workers also have the right to ignore their bosses' emails after business hours. That is not a right that any one of my staff should expect anytime soon. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.